You're listening to Ember Weekend. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson. And uh, this morning we uh, got to participate in another global Ember meetup uh, with uh, Ember Sherpa and uh, and many others. Uh, it was really, uh, really useful. Uh, you want to you wanna kick us off here and tell us what it was all about? Yeah, so Taras started off by uh, introducing some things that were uh, new in 2.1. A couple of big ones we took away were the uh, Git helper and each in helper. Yeah, and the Git helper works basically the same way as the component helper. So you can, you say Git, and then as the first parameter, you give it the object that you're wanting to um, render a property of. And the second parameter is uh, either a string uh, with the name of the property, which that would be dumb because you could just render it that way. You could just render it with a dot. So what you can do is you can give it a dynamic property so you can render anything. So say you had a property foo, and that was the string phone number. Um, now you could render render user dot or user space foo, um, and that would render the phone number. And if you change that property foo, it would render different properties of the user. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, the, the first time I saw this, I was like, I was like, why do we need this? Uh, we already can do. Uh, we can always, like the, the examples they gave in the in the blog post was uh, get space user space uh, name first name or something like that, and uh, and I was like, well, you could just do user dot name, and you know, obviously that's that's me just being short sighted because I I only skimmed over the blog post, but yeah, being able to dynamically like set that to a property and then. Uh, depending on other state in your in your component or otherwise, you can you know go and fetch this information dynamically. I think it's really powerful. It's a very similar use cases to the component helper, like you mentioned. So I'm excited about this one. And uh, the each in is similar, where it'll loop over an object, which is really cool. But one of the things that I didn't realize about this is that it doesn't actually bind it automatically. Uh, so that's something that uh, Taras did a really great example of of kind of showing how you have to. Uh, how you have to how you have to use this, and it's this is really just like the nth degree of uh, data down actions up. So basically, you don't ever send anything back. You just reset the object if you want it to re-render, and then you know as soon as that happens, um, I think he was using context as an example, and he would say, okay, set first name, and he would set it, and the you know the set action that he had, all it did was literally set the things on the object, uh, and you'd expect uh, in the each helper, for instance, if you did that. It would instantly re-render because it's like, oh yeah, well I noticed there was an observe, I noticed something changed, so I'm going to re-render myself. But with each in, you have to change the entire object itself. So what he was doing was he was saying for the context object that he was each inning over, he would reassign it, saying this dot set contacts to the merge ember merge of the new object plus the original context array. So you create a brand new object and assign that, and then it would know to re-render itself. Uh, and I think there's some performance implications here, uh, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how we start architecting applications when we when we keep pushing forward into these new ty- styles of uh, helpers. Yeah, this one seems like it's uh, basically geared for being like the the lowest level of your your UI. Um, like you have something that's rendering a hundred thousand times or something, and you want to just uh, make them very lightweight. Um, but the things below this um, aren't going to be they're not going to be dynamic. Uh, so they they were going to rely on their parents changing to to keep updated. So you wouldn't want to put this kind of at the top level, um, or things wouldn't be wouldn't be bound. Right. Yeah. Very very interesting. And and uh, one of the other things that came out of the global meetup that I definitely want to talk about and touch on is uh, Blint Eerdy uh, did his uh, presentation, and it was basically about how to uh, structure components. Um, and one of the things that came out of this was talking about how uh, components should uh, be interacted with. 
uh, spe- specifically with regard to like having children components. So parent-child. We've talked about parent-child component relationships uh, several times in the past. And uh, the thought that came out of this that was really powerful uh, for me was kind of treating the yield uh, as kind of the API of the component. So when you yield internal state from the component, you're saying, okay, well, my component's API is X, Y, and Z. Uh, and with closure actions, you can do really cool things where you can say, okay, well, yield this action. And then uh, now you can go into your your GitHub readme and say, okay, well, the API of my, uh, of my component is... Uh, I'm going to give you this action that does a thing elsewhere. And uh, rather than having to do like custom work, you can just rely on that API to do the right thing. And it, it makes it more configurable is kind of the thing that, that I took out of it. Um, and this is kind of kind of like minor breakage of isolation. Uh, and that's something that Gar- Garov brought up is basically saying, uh, you know, this, this kind of breaks some isolation. So there's some concerns there. And, uh, you know, you can alternatively yield this, which is like total obliteration of isolation. You're just saying, okay, I am no longer, I'm no longer really containing, you know, anything. I'm, I'm exposing all of my internal state. So I don't know. I thought this was a really cool discussion. Did you have any thoughts on this, Chase? I mean, yeah, I think it's a cleaner pattern to do something like yield an action. Um, it's very specific. Um, rather than have your child set its target to the parent and then just have to know what action to trigger. Um, for the parent to to basically yield an action for the child to to execute, that'd be that would be very convenient and a, and a good way like to have a defined API. Yeah, I I really like it. I like this to for general purpose components. Um, I'm gonna have to think of some examples. Maybe I, maybe I can look around and see if I I can find some well defined uh, examples that that kind of use this style and then and then document themselves in this way. So that's basically like we're not gonna provide you the children components. That's up to you to implement. Um, but we're going to give you, you know, this functionality, XYZ functionality that you can tap into easily. Now, one last thing I want to mention with regard to the global meetup was uh, Sam's talk um, about Mirage. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I'm a huge proponent of Mirage. I think we've we've talked about that quite a bit. And we had Sam on the show. We were lucky enough to have Sam on the show. Um, and, uh, you know, basically, I like the direction of Mirage. I think that it's becoming richer and richer. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to mention the funniest thing that happened at the global meetup was uh, was um, somebody asked him when when Mirage was going to become Rails, and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, he didn't really know how to respond to that. Like and he's <laughs> like, "Well, Rails is cool," and I was like, "Yeah, Rails is cool." <laughs> he got silent for a minute, and I think I think it's just like it dawned on on him like how much work is involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's been thinking about it pretty hard. Um, all right, well, cool. So um, the global meetup is recorded. And I believe they put the videos on Vimeo. So we will post links uh, to the Vimeo account. I think we may have done this last week or two weeks ago as well. And uh, you can follow along there if you're not able to free up some time on your Saturday. Check it out. Adam Niedzelski, I hope I said his name right, wrote a really good blog post on uh, routable modal dialogues in Ember.js. And he's using um, a couple of different techniques that I think are really great. The old way of doing modal dialogues was uh, was really uh, kind of difficult to reason about. I, I had to uh, I had to do several modal dialogues, uh, as I'm, I'm assuming most people who work with Ember have had to do as well. People seem to really like modals, I guess. But um, yeah, you end up having to like a- attach to an outlet, a named outlet, and kind of pass actions around. It's it's it feels it feels messy. I think towards the end, everyone started using like you know, get the get the application controller and send the action directly to it. And that's just not fun. So uh, anyways, um, this uh, blog post outlines a way to use uh, Ember modal dialogue, 
by uh, Yap Labs, which we've talked about before. And I really, really encourage the use of this app. It does some really clever things um, using Ember Wormhole to make sure that the content goes to the right place. Uh, it's very flexible. It's easy to style. And it's, it's, it's a really great piece of the puzzle. And, uh, and what Adam outlines is a way for you to um, have your modal be routable so that you can share it, which is something that Ember does really good. It takes the URL very seriously. And being able to copy and paste a, a URL and get to the correct uh, state of your application is really powerful. Uh, and it's, a, it's actually a really succinct blog post that describes you know, all the steps necessary to achieve this result. And I think it's uh, I think it's really well written, and I really enjoyed reading it. Um, so yeah, definitely check that one out. So last week, Godfrey Chan had a talk at Ember PDX, and it was about Fastboot um, and some of the um, kind of up- upcoming changes that recently got merged in uh, with uh, this pull request that we'll we'll link to in the show notes. And it was pretty cool. It was basically about how application and application instance work. Um, and I I had seen this coming. I'd seen the uh, initializers that kind of deal with this. Um, but haven't really seen anything that explained to me in a good way why that was needed. Um, and this makes a lot of sense. Um, so the idea is uh, that for things like Fastboot, it's, it would be really slow if the server, every time a request came in, had to boot up all of Ember. Um, and so what they're basically doing is they're able to load in Ember, load in all the required libraries, and have one instance of the server running. And then when a request comes in, they boot an app instance, which is basically like your interaction with the app, all the state that belong that's about your interaction with the Ember application. And then once the request is done, they just destroy it. So the talk it, uh, went over some cool history about um, why, how this came about and what, the, what used to happen in order to get this effect and how this is um, a much better pattern, uh, much less error prone. And then after implementing it, they realized there's multiple use cases for this. So um, this actually is going to probably make testing a little easier. Um, so this, if you think about it, that's basically the same way tests work. Um, when you start QUnit and it starts rolling down and it spins up your app and then calls some hook to basically say, hey, wait, Ember, I'm about to start testing uh, so that Ember doesn't keep booting. And then at the end, it says reset. And that hopefully re- would roll back all of the changes um, that had been made. But um, as he mentions in this uh, talk, that's a little buggy. Um, so this app instance idea is going to fit really well into the testing story. Uh, the other place this is going to work is uh, with things like Ember Islands, where you're trying to render little small pieces of Ember uh, all over a page that may not have any Ember on it. And I thought that was really cool. I've been actually really hoping to use Ember Island in a couple places. And the last place this could be used is someplace like um, embedding, uh, which I've never really thought about, um, but it makes a lot of sense that um, if, if you wanted to embed a little Ember application inside of another Ember application, um, this makes add-ons like even more isolated. Um, and that's kind of like a kind of far off thing, uh, but they're talking about how to make this work. I, I'm sure that there's a lot of kind of communication that has to happen between these apps so that Ember doesn't clobber the embedded application, but yeah, it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, sounds definitely definitely really interesting. Yehuda Katz did a talk at Ember PDX uh, called Ember 2.0, The Road Ahead. And in it, he talks about where we came from in Ember 1.0 to 1.13. And then, you know, the, the most important thing I, I took away from this talk was the idea of a long-term support Ember version. Uh, it's really cool. It's outlined in an RFC that he did, uh, I don't know, it was, it was a little while ago. Um, that we'll we'll link to so you can take a, a closer look at it. But the idea be- behind these long-term support uh, versions is that uh, any reliance on the Intimate APIs as of now um, can uh, can break your app when you do a minor upgrade because they will they will you know remove private APIs if if they're you know refactored away from 
Uh, and what a long-term support version promises is that those intimate APIs will be properly deprecated in and then only removed upon the next long-term support Ember version. So this allows you to have more time to change things and, and have more reliable upgrade processes around your, your, especially with bigger Ember projects. I think this is going to be really important. But the, the idea here is, I think, I think since it's a six-week release cycle still for minor versions, these long-term supports are going to be every four versions, and that's 24 weeks. So about every half year, you're going to uh, go to the next long-term support version. And I think that's much more sustainable. Just as a consultant, uh, frequently I have to go up and say, oh yeah, I need to spend some time upgrading Ember. It might take me a little while or something might break or something like that. And, uh, and I like this idea a lot of basically being able to say, okay, yeah, we're good. Um, we can upgrade um, guaranteed that the intimate APIs won't break um, in between these minor patches. So it's much more uh, easy for, for me to reliably upgrade or on the long-term support ones. Uh, spend actually a little bit more time, make sure everything's buttoned down, and we will have plenty of time to follow the deprecation process to uh, to get up to date in the right ways. So I think this is a very good idea for for a for a m- bunch of reasons. Yeah, the one question I had about it was, um, would this even be a problem if you weren't using any private APIs? Uh, yeah. So they they kind of use the the term intimate API to mean something different than a private API. So yeah, you you, you this would not matter necessarily if you have reliance on private APIs, right? Uh, or if you have no reliance on private APIs. But the intimate APIs are ones like um, until very recently, interacting with um, the container was fraught with with some peril, even though like everyone was doing it, um, and probably still is. You know, like that's why we had a big push recently to have a bunch of API standardization around registration and ejecting. And there's a bunch of new things in 2.1 specifically about that um, because those those APIs were private, but they were being used widely because there was no other escape valve. So um, so that's, what, that's the kind of difference between an intimate API and a private API. A private API is kind of like um, something that, something that is, is not widely used. It's like Ember underscore underscore loader, right? Yeah, something like that. That would be different than I think the container is a private API, but I think it, it had such wide applications that it was still used, maybe because of add-on usage or some popular Stack Overflow um, response, which um, which is mentioned in Yehuda's talk. So I thought this is pretty cool. I think I think it's gonna it's gonna help a lot of uh, a lot of larger clients get a little bit more comfortable working with Ember. I think, and it's I mean it's also um, a good way for you to know whether the upgrade you're about to do is going to be a hard one or an easy one. Uh, yeah. You'll be able to plan out and say, hey, well, the next upgrade is going to be a little harder because it's going to be an LTS upgrade. Yeah. Definitely watch this talk, though, if you are interested in in learning about how the how the release cycle kind of works and how it's going to work, because uh, I think there's a lot of really good information here. And uh, and if you keep watching, you'll get a, a lot of information about uh, how pods, uh, which is the next one of the next big pushes, is going to affect you know routable components and angle bracket components. So uh, definitely definitely something to, to take a look at. And that's all we have for this Ember weekend. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson. And we'll talk to you next weekend. After a lot of Battlefront. Yeah. Now now for some Battlefront. A lot of Battlefront.